Welcome to Optimizing, the podcast about leading Africa's digital future. I'm Professor Barry Dwolanski. And I'm Karen Gammy. Season two has the theme, Receiving and Passing the Baton. We're in conversation with people who have shaped or will shape Africa's digital future. Each conversation draws on the metaphor of life as a relay race. Our guests will talk about how they received the baton, who and what influenced them as they started life's journey. We will then discuss their own journey, how they nurtured and grew the baton in their hands. Finally, we will ask them about what it is that they will pass on to the next generation of leaders and experts. Today we're joined by Kent Beck. Uh, Kent is hard to label. He's a he's he's American. He's a software engineer. Uh, he's a writer. He's written very influential books. He's a thought leader, and he's much more than that. He's probably one of the most influential figures in the field of software engineering in the last twenty years. But he's also a musician. He's a cook, and Kent's even done stand-up comedy. I've seen him do that on YouTube. So he's a man of many talents. Um, he's probably best known as the creator of something called Extreme Programming, which is a software development methodology. He's also been one of the major proponents of test-driven development. In 2001, he was one of 17 signatories of the Agile Manifesto that started a movement which, which really revolutionized the world of software development around the world. In 2011, he joined Facebook, where he played a pivotal role in mentoring some of the world's top developers working at Facebook. And he also um, helped to shape a very unique development culture at Facebook. Um, after five years at Facebook, he left to work independently as a speaker and coach and a man of many talents. Um, Kent first visited South Africa as a guest of the Joburg Center for Software Engineering, JCSE, in 2005. This visit initiated a long association between Kent and our local software development community. And um, he has twice been a keynote speaker at our annual Agile Africa conference. And he's also run workshops in Johannesburg, Pretoria and Cape Town. While he was at Facebook, he had other connections to Africa, working with developers in Nigeria and Kenya. So that's Kent Beck and that's who's joining us today. Um, Kent, in this conversation, we're going to be asking you about your baton or batons that you have received from those who went before you. We will then ask you to reflect on how you've made it better and made it your own. And finally, uh, we'd like you to imagine handing this over to those who will come next. What is it that you'll hand over? I'm joined in this conversation by my co-host, Karen Gammy. 
Um, Karen is starting on her life's journey. Uh, Karen works at a bank, at one of our big South African banks, where she uh, develops data science AI systems. And, and it is her generation of future leaders and future experts who will be receiving the baton that you, Kent, and I will pass on. So to start with, after that very long introduction, there are many profiles of you on the internet, and I've looked at some of them. Talks about you having studied computer science at the University of Oregon, and, it, and you then went on to work in a, in, in, uh, for Chrysler on a very large IT system. Can you um, talk a bit more about how you got into this world of software development? And what sort of student, what sort of child were you? And what kind of person becomes Kent Beck? <laughs> oh, oh uh, uh, what an open-ended question. I'm, <laughs> I'm now wishing that I hadn't lived so long so that I could uh, give you a, a briefer answer. <laughs> uh, so I was uh, born and raised in what would be uh, Silicon Valley. But when I was born, it was still uh, primarily agricultural. Um, I remember the apricot and the cherry orchards and the smell of tomatoes being canned at the giant uh, canning plants. My dad was uh, an engineer, uh, began as an electrical engineer, and then moved to uh, uh, digital when... Um, uh, microprocessors first came out. Um, and so I got into computing kind of uh, by osmosis. I was uh, the kind of child who would, I was just fascinated with whatever, uh, coins, stamps. I went through a, a gun and hunting phase. Um but my dad would bring home books about computing, uh, and I would read them cover to cover, even though I didn't understand a word of what was going on. So I could probably still dredge up details of the Burroughs 7600 instruction set from deep, deep in my memory. Um, and I knew that I was fascinated or obsessed with this complicated mechanism. I could tell that there was something compelling about it, but I didn't really, I didn't know how to, how to, to program at that point. Uh, and then when I was in sixth grade, so we're talking 72, 73, my dad brought home a, a programmable calculator. Um, which was as big as a table, probably weighed 40 kilos. Um, and it had a little programming language, kind of assembly language or machine language-ish. And the coolest thing about it was it had Nixie tubes as the display. And a Nixie tube is, uh, before there were seven-segment LEDs, a Nixie tube would display a, a digit, by having 10 incandescent filaments, one in front of the other, shaped in the shape of the different numbers. 
And because they were in front of each other, uh, as the numbers counted up, the, the, uh, the, the number that you saw that was lit up would move back, like physically back from you because these filaments were, were stacked up. And I noticed this. And so the first program I ever wrote just counted up and down and up and down so that, so that the, the, uh, the numbers would go forward and back from, from my perspective. And then I sat and watched this for hours, just <laughs> utterly fascinated by it. So I was, I had a, a normal childhood is what I'm saying. Yeah, very normal. About. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was, uh, that, so that that's when I knew that I was hooked. But I was always interested in in other stuff too. I had all of these these other interests. I was into sport. I was um, I was always a musician from the time I was nine. So I've been playing guitar for fifty plus years now. Um, and yeah, I would kind of bounce from thing to thing. But computing was always a fascination for me. And then. When microprocessors came out, that was just a magic moment. Now computers weren't this thing you went into a room with a raised floor and loud air conditioning. A computer was something that would sit on your desk. And being in the middle of Silicon Valley, oh my goodness, the excitement and the energy around that. Um, people just knew that all the rules of the game were about to change and or had changed and we just didn't know how they would change so that's and um your your um time as a student so you you, you uh, did computer science at the university of oregon mm -hmm. and uh what was um uh, your student life like were you a geek were you a Jock, what did you do at university? What was Kent Beckett University like? I, I did a little bit of, of everything. I actually alternated years between computer science and music. Okay. So, so computer science, I took to very naturally, but got kind of bored with it. And so the second year, I was walking through the music school one day and saw a sign-up sheet for uh, audition. So just on a whim, I auditioned and to my shock got in so I was a music student for a year but then I missed programming so I did programming for another year and then I missed music so I did music and did my senior recital and then I finished off uh, with my uh, master's in in computer science and in uh, fact it's it's um, quite interesting that you say that you that you mixed music and computer science because I think quite a lot of very good computer scientists are also seriously involved in music. So it's not a mismatch at all. No, it's no. quite a good combination. Yeah, I think that it, it took me a long time to come up with a theory. I, I pretty much always have a theory. It took me a long time to come up with a theory about the connection. And there's a, a, a lot of people have, have I, their own ideas. But mine is that it's about pattern recognition, that there's this moment in programming where you realize, oh, I get it. And uh, if your brain is set up 
to be good at finding those patterns, number one, and number two, having this jolt of happy brain chemicals. When that happens, you become addicted to it. But the same experience happens in music where you're kind of wondering where this music is going and then, oh, then you see the pattern and it, it feels fantastic. And so you want more of that. And I, and I get that same kind of feeling out of playing poker now, which is my hmm. current hobby, of, hobby obsession of choice, where you're wondering what's going on because you've got partial information and then you realize, oh, I see. You have this, you have that, and I have these cards. So I call or I fold. And I get that same jolt of, of uh, happy brain chemicals in that moment as well. So I think it's about pattern recognition. Yeah, I think that kind of really speaks to what makes a programmer a programmer. Um, Karen, does this ring any bells for you? Yes, I was literally just about to say this is like uncanny. A couple of weeks ago, I just in sheer lockdown, I don't know, blues, boredom, whatever you want to call it. I was like, okay, I've been wanting to play the guitar seriously for a while now. And I'm just, I'm going to take the plunge. So I found this lovely human on Gumtree who was selling this really cool electric guitar. And I went out, got it. And <laughs> it was just, it was the best. I know like half a song um, that has like no chords and just has like a couple open strings. And I've just been obsessing about it. And I think it's exactly that thing that you're saying. It's like your brain gets good at recognizing patterns and it's exciting. And then there's also this element of like creativity when you're creating a program or trying to create a song, which let me not say I'm trying to create a song that anyone would want to listen to besides myself. But I totally, totally hear that. Um, so yeah, just hearing you say those things, I'm like, oh my God, he's in my brain. Cause that's mm -hmm. exactly what's happening. <laughs> and that's super cool. And I think also, you know, music is one example, but, but I think the, the process of creating programs or even engineering systems and stuff requires its own kind of creativity. And it just absolutely makes sense to kind of, you know, have, have things that that sort of complemented like music or painting or doodling or whatever. Um, so yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, Karen, I was Karen, actually Karen, wondering. I, yeah, sorry, yeah. Sorry, for Karen. It. I have a question for you. Would you yeah. would you say that you're uh, generally speaking a good judge of whether other people will be interested in what you do? As it relates to music, or just anything, as just anything, anything in general. If you guess what other people are going to like about what you do, are you good at guessing? Hmm. It depends. If I'm especially anxious and not being kind to myself, probably not. But if I'm having a really good day where I'm not anxious, I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so, so as a new musician, you say, oh, I, 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 I what I twigged to was, uh, oh, not that anybody would care about what I'm playing. Hmm. And uh, I, I would guess... If I had to bet, I'd bet that you're not a real good judge of whether other people would care about what you're playing. So hmm. your, your best strategy is uh, probably just to get it out there. And most likely, nobody will care because most likely, I mean, for most things, you, you know, you're in a sea of, of s stuff and there's a lot of interesting things out there. But if you're not good at guessing, then you hmm. just have to try it. Sure. I Yeah, I think there is definitely a, a distinction between people caring and people sort of liking sort of what you do. And I think my friends who are all just the most lovely and most wholesome of people definitely care about this half song that I can play. And when I send them recordings, they're always just like, yes, start a band, you could do the thing. But I think are objectively like, 
also maybe you should practice because <laughs> because things sound a little bit off but i totally i totally get what you mean and i think that is often a, a sort of a hindrance to learning and doing cool things it's just the fear or imposter syndrome or whatever yeah and i think that it's everybody has it it's also part mm -hmm. and parcel of having this kind of pattern matchy brain is that you want to mm. guess what other people are going to like and Hundreds. one of the things i've noticed is the the things that i've done that have resonated the most strongly are most often things that i think are very ordinary like mm. obvious extreme programming i mean i picked the name for marketing reasons not because it <laughs> felt extreme to me um and just seemed like kind of the obvious and yet other people found found it interesting or infuriating or whatever mm -hmm. um so I, I i i've restructured my life so that i don't try and guess how other people are going to react i try and do little bits of a lot of things and pay attention to what people do react to and that's uh, it's it's um, a pretty critical thing you've said because I think that extreme programming is um, it 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 kind of comes from you. I mean, I can I can uh, see why you came up with extreme programming because it is that sort of not caring or it's uh, doing something in uh, the personal space, the programmer's space. So extreme programming for me. I really stepped out of this idea of a big team driven by a very formal um, plan and a manager and it focused in on the individual doing the work and I, I get I get the feeling that you're a very strong individual and it is um, kind of it, it, it makes sense that you came up with extreme programming um, could you speak a bit more about extreme programming test-driven development and the things that you that you pioneered and the, the the kind of headspace that you brought into doing that why did kent beck come up with extreme programming hmm okay um so my thought coming out of school was <clears throat> i had watched my dad be an absolute virtuoso programmer and he was spectacularly good at what he did and i thought well if i become a virtuoso programmer then i will be more successful so i set out to learn absolutely everything i could about certainly about small talk the the environment i was working in but also more generally um, yeah, I have a, still have a shelf full of instruction set manuals someplace of, of various microprocessors because that's just the kind of thing that I'm going to obsess about. And it took maybe uh, eight or so years before I realized that there would always be more to learn about the technique of programming, but uh, my projects... The uh, uh, diminishing returns had set in. So my projects weren't becoming more successful because I was a better programmer in a technical sense. You can be a bad enough programmer to 
cause a project to fail, but you can't be a good enough programmer, just a programmer, to have a project succeed. Uh, because there's all this context that goes on, all these relationships that you form with business people, with customers, with managers, with your colleagues, and the skills required to do that are very different than the skills you learn in computer science school. So I started paying attention to the context of programming and not just programming itself, but because I grew my interest from programming outwards, I wanted to include as little of that stuff as I could so I could get back to programming because that's that, that's that moment of happy brain juice. You know, every, every test that, every new test that passes is, uh, is another moment of joy. Every, refactoring that that uh, deletes some duplication is an, is another moment of happiness and i wanted to build my experience of programming around those moments so that's where uh, that's where extreme programming came from it was an attempt to to make sure that programming talent and skill and dedication mattered so that it wouldn't go to waste. I hate wasting time. You know, a human life is about 3 billion seconds. That's 92 years. Um, and I just hate wasting them on stuff that does not matter. So when I looked at the kind of project management that I was taught in computer science school, there was just a whole bunch of stuff there that just didn't matter. People writing literally stacks and stacks of documents that no one would ever read, that would be obsolete before there was any excuse to read them. And I thought, well, okay, don't do that. What is it that we have to do in order to be successful? And that's having a, a rich socially connected team and short feedback loops. So if, if, uh, you know, if I can sum up the baton I want to pass to jump ahead a little bit is, is a m more richly connected social network and shorter feedback loops. And if you can, if you push to achieve that, then all the rest of it is going to come in its wake. And that kind of really then kind of uh, fast forwards us to to you being part of putting together the very um, influential and famous Agile Manifesto. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and Beria, wanted, yeah. I, 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 I'm, I'm sorry to, to correct you. I'm not just one of the 17 no. people, the 17 middle-aged white guys who signed mm -hmm. that. I am the first. Yeah. Uh, alphabetically. Yes. So it is officially no. Beck et al., which brings yes. me a, a fair amount of a fairly perverse joy. Yes, and, and many citations. <laughs> exactly. So, um, but um, I'm just quite curious to ask um, Karen, and, and Karen, as a representative of your peers, uh, so you aren't really a software engineer. You are... Uh, what I've started calling an AI systems engineer, if that's yet a thing. 
And are you doing one of those jobs of the future that everyone talks about as we uh, obsess around the so-called fourth industrial revolution? So um, I'm keen to ask you, Karen, a question, and you can be very honest in spite of the fact that Ken is, Kent is here, but um, had you ever heard of Kent or extreme programming or agile development as a, an AI systems engineer before I introduced you to Kent? Uh, was it something you had come across in your learnings? Mm. Uh, yes, so definitely. Uh, there's a, a big thing uh, with, with the word agile. And I think people kind of make the mistake of using a capital A to describe their, themselves when really they just mean that they're like quick like a cat and they're not actually doing, you know, agile stuff. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've kind of uh, had firsthand experience with it. That's kind of how we run our our sessions at work, which is really cool. Um, and then I remembered uh, there was a, a fight going on uh, at work the one day around kind of yeah, extreme programming uh, in the sense that, you know, uh, some people are of the opinion that it kind of only works with like very senior kind of devs um, or it requires like a really big cultural shift and therefore it doesn't work if you're in a big company. Um, so that's sort of how I kind of like came to, to learn about it. Um, in terms of like Kent Beck, the person, uh, I think it was when I like I Googled his name and I saw the face. I was like, oh, the agile dude. OK, cool. Um, but yeah, I think I knew more about the, the work than than sort of the person. And that's yep. I mean, yep. it's uh, Kent. Sorry, carry on. Uh, if I have to uh, if I have to choose one or the other, I'd rather people knew the work and didn't know my name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's I mean, that's an important thing because because we are a um a interest group or a culture or a profession of of uh, big names but i think that what kent has just pointed out is that it is the work that that becomes the legacy that gets passed on so uh, you know one could could list many names of people that have made a, a key contribution i think um that People of my generation might know some of those names. People of your generation, Karen, might not know the name. But you will know the things that have been passed on by Kent and, and his peers in this uh, developing story of how software is developed. Um, but um, a question to Kent is, is how relevant is um, XP, TDD, and Agile in today's world of, di of uh, digital development, where we no longer or we, we uh, build systems in different ways. We work at higher levels of abstraction. We build uh, machine learning systems. Is your, your legacy still, or that part of your legacy, still relevant in the world? Uh, today of these new jobs? Well, I, 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 it's an excellent question. It's one that I think about when I wake up in the night at times. Am I going to become the next Donald Knuth? Um, where the, the art of computer programming is unbelievable magnum opus and most of the issues he addresses with, with such insight and such skill 
don't matter to most people. Um, I I think it's kind of inevitable that that's going to be increasingly the case as uh, as I get older. Um, the the fundamentals, though, I don't change. People are still going to be people. Sunk cost fallacies still going to be there. Uh, you, uh, accountability, blame, manipulation, all that. None of that part. None of that stuff is going to change. Yeah. The the biases of uh, of people with uh, with us brains that are wired for this kind of pattern matching. Uh, that's not going away anytime soon. So I think the the real fundamentals don't change. I think the the details do. If you boil it down to a connected social network and short feedback loops, that absolutely makes sense whether you're talking about a machine learning based system or uh, um, something where the logic is uh, is explicitly expressed. Oh yeah, I did. No, how could that be? Yeah. I, it can't be. It can't be any different. And I think that's been um, something I've observed is that this, that the notions, the values, the principles that are at the heart of agile and XP, are are, are things that have come into the common common vocabulary of how work is done. So I've seen people working in advertising agencies or, or uh, movie production companies who work in an agile way who aren't developing software at all, but are doing other things, but still bring in some of those practices and some of that thinking. Yeah, a good example of that is the principle of flow, which says that all else being equal, smaller increments of value more often is more valuable than larger increments less often. And and that applies whether you're producing music or stories or film or programs or companies or products. It doesn't, yeah, that doesn't change things. And you, you, um, um, talked in 2005. I can remember you came, and I'll speak a bit of, uh, speak a bit more about your first visit. But uh, when you came here in 2005, you uh, gave a talk, and you were speaking about something you called the half-life of information, and you showed how many projects that are based on these huge tomes of of generating requirements and collecting information months and months before the work started and by the time the work started and all the planning had ended that information had gone through through a, through a decay like a half-life of a of a of, of a sort of radioactive particle and the value of the information was very dubious by that point is that mm -hmm. still something you believe and you see people using that in many other domains I still certainly believe it. I'd, I'd forgotten that analogy, and so thank you for reminding me. Um, the if you if you took that as a fundamental principle, how would you behave? That's the that's the question. 
I mean, and that's to take the conversation up one meta level. That's that's a strategy that I just use over and over again. I have some model. I say, what does this model predict about how I should behave? Then I try it. And if it works for me, then it works. And sometimes it's a very surprising. So going back down, if you took that half-life model, then you want to make one decision and then validate it. Because as soon as you make the decision, all the assumptions that you, that you base that decision on start bleaching in the sun. Mm. And uh, so like the more free, the, the, the shorter the gap is between making a decision and getting feedback about the quality of that decision, the more progress you make, but also the faster you learn, which causes your progress to accelerate. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, Can I just, uh, I, yeah, I'm, I'm curious about that. I, um, and it's also something I've sort of been wrestling with kind of interpersonally is like, how do you kind of close that feedback loop? Uh, and if you're thinking about like interpersonal relationships, you know, if you have a fight with someone you love and then you're trying to get like feedback really quickly so you can like not do it again or whatever, um, it, I, I think the approach might come across as very like, oh, you're super solutions focused and actually you must just like sit in the, in the moment and be okay with the chaos. And maybe like that only like, you know, has its place in like programming and, and a really kind of technical discipline, which I, I personally am inclined to, to kind of disagree with. I think that there are some very incredible overlaps between what happens in programming and then what can also happen kind of interpersonally. Um, but I'm wondering if like, if you've experienced something like that too, where you've, there's almost been like a, needed to be like a clear separation between like your technical persona versus like your, I don't know, lived persona uh, in terms of like this, this feedback learning loop, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So, cool. so that's not the distinction I make, but there is a very important distinction between reversible and irreversible decisions. So in 2001, maybe, uh, an economics professor uh, gave a keynote speak, speech at an XP conference. And I, I wrote about this in a paper I think is called Reversibility for Programmers. Mm -hmm. um, if you can undo a decision, then don't agonize over it, just do it. If you can't undo a decision, then you should think very carefully. So th think about the difference between choosing to take the next step uh, on a trail in the mountains versus choosing to take the next step uh, uh, in a city. Uh, you have to think about the steps you're taking in the city to a much greater degree because if you step off of a curb and you get hit by a bus, you can't undo it. Yep. But if you're walking a... Uh, in the Western Cape and you take a step along a trail and it turns out to be the wrong step, you just step backwards. Mm. So personal relationships are irre irreversible uh, for many of the decisions that you make. So in that case, you're better off thinking before you do. Mm. Many of the decisions that we make in programming are, are reversible 
and we can work to make more of them reversible. I've been reviewing books on uh, systems design, not computer systems, but but more generally. Uh, and I'm astonished the degree to which people are still trying to make good decisions instead of structuring projects so that you don't have to make good decisions before you have the information. So there, there's still lots and lots of focus on, uh, okay, so you, you have to decide X, Y, and Z, so, and you don't have the information, so here's how you guess. And I think, wow, if you took that same energy and restructured the project so that you could try something out, and if it didn't work, you could undo it, then you wouldn't have to guess. Now, yes, there would be work involved. It's, there's a, an inefficiency to operating in that way. But there are just some things like a, a company's reputation that you can't reverse Oh, you know, we're sorry that uh, that we paid the wrong people a whole bunch of money. Please give us the money back. That's not going to go well, period. So you should be very careful. I work for a, a payroll company, Gusto, now, and we have to make a very clear distinction between irreversible decisions, things having to do with money or security, and the reversible decisions, some change in the user interface or some some workflow for the small business owners that we serve. If it doesn't work out, we change it back. It's no big deal. Or even even more reversible are, are the systems design decisions that we make. If somebody wants to refactor something, I go, just do it. Don't don't plan it. Don't get somebody's permission. Just do it. Because if I if I extract a function out of some bigger function, and then I realize that's a bad idea. I just inline it and I'm done. It's reversible. So don't think about that. Just do it and see how it works out. If you came to me with that same strategy for our, our uh, uh, privacy or security policies, I would toss you out because you can't undo it. So for me, that's the distinction that I needed to make. And Karen, I, I did maybe a little what you did. I tried to apply extreme programming to my relationships and it just didn't work out. But it's not that the ideas don't apply. It's that there is this strong distinction between reversible and irreversible decisions. And I need to take that into account. Does that make sense? Yes, that was super helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Kent, it, it kind of rings a bell for me in terms of because you, you uh, did fantastic work ar around extreme programming and agile. And you, you uh, didn't stop there. I mean, you, you've been doing amazing stuff since. And uh, when you were here last, you uh, did some amazing um, seminars on what you call your 3X um, approach or your 3X philosophy mm -hmm. or model. And it, it kind of has in, in the first X, it is that, that kind of reversibility. Could you just maybe speak for a few minutes about a 3x and and in fact anything else you've been doing in the last 15 years or so that have moved on from xp and agile barry we only have another hour yeah. i don't have time for this um but, <laughs> sure i'll give you the the uh, the short the answers. quick version 
So 3x is the observation that uh, in the growth of an idea, whether it's a product or a technique or a company, there are distinct phases in that growth and they require distinct approaches. So uh, everything in nature uh, grows according to this S-shaped logistic curve, uh, which is uh, the, the balance, the dance between a reinforcing loop where for a while, the more you grow, the faster you grow, and an inhibiting loop that eventually kicks in where the more you grow, the harder it is to grow. So this, the, the, the combination of those two loops creates this S-shaped curve. In the early phases, what I call explore, you got nothing to lose. You have a lot to gain. You have a small chance of a big, big success. So your best strategy is to try a little bit of everything. And, and Karen, I hinted at this with, with music. And this is my approach to music too on my SoundCloud page. I just upload whatever. I have things I call one mic, one take where I'll just sing a song. And every once in a while, one of those songs is much more popular than others, but I couldn't predict it. So that's that explore stage where you can't predict success, so your best approach is just try a little bit of everything. And the cheaper you can make your experiments, the more likely you are to be successful. Could I just maybe say that that kind of sounds like that that concept of reversibility you were talking about? Yeah, so there's, uh, yeah. there's no big deal if you make the wrong choice because you're exploring. Absolutely. So, so Karen, in your musical journey, I would say your your biggest advantage now is that you have nothing to lose and nobody mm -hmm. cares. Yep. It's, what a wonderful resource because right? you're absolutely free to do anything. Yeah, this is actually something. So now that I'm growing older and wiser, I think there's a, a perception that uh, you're just meant to be good at things, you know, because you've been doing it so long and you kind of don't get the uh, what is the word? Um, the same kind of concession that you did when you were a novice or just learning something. And I'm always like, that makes no sense. I feel like I'm just always learning something. So I should always get the concession of being like a novice or an amateur because it's so hard to know everything in its entirety. Um, so yeah, I, yeah, I'm with you on that. Okay. So, so let's say you've been exploring for a while and people are unaccountably interested in something that you've done. The first observation is the rules of the game change in that moment. You, you've mm -hmm. gone from a small chance of a big success mm -hmm. to a fairly big chance of a big success because of the reaction that people have had. Yeah. And your behavior needs to change as a result of the, the change in the trade-offs. Whereas in, in exploration, you should be wildly creative and try a little bit of lots of things. In expansion, that that vertical growth phase, you need mm -hmm. to be ruthlessly focused on whatever's preventing the next stage of growth. Deal with that as quickly as you can, because if you're lucky, there'll be another bottleneck to your growth and another and another. So expansion is the 
is the one damn thing after another phase. And fortunately, that's relatively short. But the style of management, oftentimes the people involved, the amount of funding involved, um, the, the way that you track progress is completely different in expansion than it was in, in exploration. Do you feel like you learned that lesson uh, introspectively or experientially? Or did you feel like you learned that lesson because other people were like, whoa, okay, you're now in this expansionary phase. So you got to, you know, you got to shift and you got to realign. Well, first, I'm hardly the first person to notice this shift. Mm -hmm. um, for me, the, the insight came from being at Facebook and it took me five years to, to suss it out, Facebook looked like just a chaotic clown show, and yet the results were really amazing. They had this combination of stable production, rapid scaling, and innovation, and lots of companies can't do one of those. The companies that can do one have a hard time doing two, and nobody I'd seen was able to do all three. And the, the secret at Facebook is that projects in different phases were managed very, very differently. And when, when you made the transition, somebody would notice and say, ah, it's time to shift gears. So the, the third phase, that, that expansion phase is, is uh, unpredictable, uncontrolled growth where you're just trying to get out of the way of, the growth that's naturally going to happen. Eventually, a diminishing return sets in, and then you have the extraction phase where you're pulling value out of what you did. That, again, is its own set of rules, its own set of trade-offs. You're at scale. You have a lot to lose now, whereas in the early in the exploration phase, you got nothing to lose because nobody cares. In the expansion phase, you don't have time to think about what you have to lose. You're just trying to grow as fast as you can. In the extraction phase, you have a lot to lose. So the 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 crazy creativity of the early days needs to go away with respect to the success that you've had. And now now that you've gone through that that cycle once then the magic and this is what facebook did so well for so long was managing different projects in di that that are in different phases in a completely different way so at facebook if somebody wanted to in the 2011 facebook let me be specific somebody wanted to try something they'd just go try it and if it seemed if it wasn't obviously bad it would go into production and you'd see what happened and that's something you can do when you're small and and relatively unknown. Uh, and the minds that mindset is tuned to those reversible decisions. The problem comes now you've got some uh, uh, a gigantic revenue stream and you want to protect it. Now you have to become conservative for that part of the business while still allowing people to go do crazy things. Because the success is always going to be a, a surprise. Those explorations that, that transition into expansion, it's always going to be a surprise because if it wasn't a surprise, it would be an extraction for something else. 
Say, oh, people are using the product in completely uh, uh, unexpected ways. Good. That's a sign that you've found another uh, possible expansion. Uh, so it's, it's a surprise, but it's not at random. You have to be prepared to uncover that idea. And then when it takes off, you need to shift gears, go into that expansion mode, and then realize when uh, diminishing returns are starting to set, set in and shift to a more sustainable mode while sparking off the ideas for the next round of innovation. Could I, That's three could I just Yeah. And, and it's um, such a fascinating and such a powerful model. And uh, you say that it, it sort of grew, or the idea grew out of your observation at Facebook. Um, to, um, um, uh, to what extent is uh, 3x a thing now? Are people using it? Have you seen other companies, small companies, teams, um, adopting 3x or has there been any um, kind of uptake in this idea and who's using it apart from Facebook? Well, I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't say that Facebook is using it. I put words to behavior that was emerging organically. Mm. Um, so for example, a, a project would be exploring something would start to take off and somebody would say, hey, you guys need to get together in a room because the disks are filling up or servers are catching fire or whatever. Do you need to solve these problems? You're growing too fast to just keep uh, playing around and trying different stuff. So that was, there weren't, there explore, expand, extract was not a vocabulary that was used there, but it was definitely in the air. There are vocal proponents of 3X. I'm thinking of uh, Anthony Marcano in the UK, for example. Um, and and there there is interest in applying it. I get frequent uh, fan mail, I guess you would call it, about 3X and, and how it, uh, it had helped somebody with a problem. I mean, the... The I find it so helpful if I'm if I don't realize what phase I'm in and I'm confused and frustrated and then I realize oh I see I moved from explore to expand and I didn't change my behavior that's why things aren't working uh, so I get the, that kind of of uh, feedback regularly as far as is it going to spawn international conferences and uh, a, a a multi-billion dollar consulting industry? No, I don't think so. It's, but it's, it's, it's a kind, it, yeah. It's also Sorry. early days. It's the expansion yeah. days of yeah. 3X, so who knows? And it's um, kind of interesting because I think there's been, and we've spoken about it at various points, but there's been this sort of um, pretty much a crisis in the world of Agile where uh, the ideas as put forward by Beck et al. in 2001 <laughs> is um, now, um, it's um, turned into a billion dollar industry where everyone has their own flavor of agile. And, um, and I think people, managers of organizations that 
kind of believe in Agile are struggling in terms of knowing uh, uh, precisely what Agile means, when to use it, how to use it. And I think that what the 3X, it, it kind of says to me when it's appropriate to use what kind of Agile or what kind of methodology. So it's almost a sort of roadmap to how to do development in a way that's appropriate to the phase or stage that an activity is at. Would you agree with that? Yes, uh, we have these perennial uh, debates in, in software development, estimates versus no estimates, automated testing, no automated testing, should you refactor or not? And uh, for me, the answer to those questions changes by phase. Mm -hmm. So um, if you're making, uh, if you're building exploratory products and you're making long-term investments, which are very unlikely to pay off, then you should stop. You should do it. it if there's a trade-off where you can get quicker feedback by doing a sloppy job, get the feedback, throw away the result, um, then it, you, know, you realize, nope, this isn't a good idea, then you should definitely do that. Now, you may be able to get better a quicker feedback by uh having a more cr a craft like approach to development in which case that's what you should do but you sh in the explore phase latency is what matters you have an idea and you want to know how are people going to react what's the shortest path to finding out how people are going to react and if you don't have to write any code at all that's the best uh, best latency uh, that you can possibly create Absolutely. Um, I'm keen to turn to um, to something else for the last bit of our of our podcast. And um, in 2005, we were very excited. Well, I personally was very excited when I sent you an invite to come to South Africa as a guest of my center, my brand new center, Wits mm -hmm. uh, University's JCSE. We partnered with the company Cybergate and a friend who's the CEO of Cybergate, Faisal Mayet. And you came with your family. As far as I can recall, it was your first visit to Africa. Correct. And certainly your first visit to South Africa. Can you just talk about what your impressions were of the country? But more importantly, what did you think of our local software development community? when you came here in 2005. So first, let me thank you, uh, I hope again, for that invitation, because it was a, was a life-changing event for me. The thing that I noticed at that time, first, was the, the legacy of apartheid was still very much in evidence. Uh, it, so it was it would it made it very personal uh to me that things i took for granted freedoms that i took for granted i should not take for granted that that some people had to sacrifice for that the same privileges um the uh, the next thing that i noticed was the the in contrast to silicon valley how many people 
were accepting responsibility for uh, all of Africa. I go to work every day to improve the economy, not just of South Africa, but of the entire continent, as opposed to the Silicon Valley attitude, which is I'm trying to line my pockets. And uh, that that kind of attitude was very much in evidence that that people weren't just in this for themselves. And and that really changed. Um, it made it easier for me to to accept responsibility for a much larger community it wasn't just. I wanted to get better at programming because I wanted to be good at programming and feel good about it. I wanted my entire community of developers to come closer to reaching their full potential. Um, the development community that uh, I talked to, wow. Um, South Africa was the first time that I ever encountered a frank conversation about race. So I gave a talk, I don't know if you remember this, in Pretoria. And there was a group of students, some sort of defense establishment. There was a group of students and afterwards I kind of cringed and, and asked some of, my, some of my friends who were there, it seems like, I only got questions from the white students and not, not the black students. Now in America, you can't talk about race without being racist. Yeah. And uh, and what I was astonished by was in South Africa it was like, oh yeah, well here's why that works because the schooling systems are segregated and they're very different, and the students who go to traditionally black schools aren't taught to ask questions and to challenge teachers and the students who go to traditionally white schools are. So yes, it makes perfect sense that that's true. And no, that's not good for the continued learning of the students, but it is a thing and it's real and it is race-based and we should talk about that. So yeah, I can clearly remember that. <laughs> I, um, I won't mention any names, but I remember where it was as well. I'm kind of sad that I, I missed this because it totally sounds like something I would want to be a part of. Um, but actually, that, that, that has a, a couple of uh, questions for me. So, um, I, you know, as I said, I worked uh, at, a, at a bank, now doing data science, um, but I was involved in credit risk for about a year and a half. Um, at APSA and also at another financial institution. And I guess I got to experience kind of firsthand sort of how morally dubious credit is and, and just how kind of ethically questionable a lot of what we take for granted is, yeah, just is, yeah, ethically questionable. And I think my more recent sort of encounters with, with data and, and specifically AI and the community is that I think people are becoming a lot more focused on the ethical implications of these scalable algorithms and how you can obviously automate bias if you're not thinking critically about the people that you're trying to solution for, which is why we should have more kind of like for us, by us kinds of collaborative workings and interdisciplinary stuff, which I think is super important. And I kind of want to understand like from someone who has both been, you know, part of uh, the technical community and also someone who has, you know, 
pioneered a lot of the technical community. Like, what were sort of the ethical conversations happening sort of when you were younger and when you were developing stuff? Like, how front of mind was that? And I understand that race is exceptionally complex. Um, and, and, you know, there are proxies for race. You know, there's class, there's language, there's all sorts of things. But, um, yeah, I guess I'm interested to understand sort of what that looked like when you were younger. Um, and then sort of what you think some of the learnings are for, for folks like me, who are now, I guess, to use the analogy that, that Barry used, you know, taking the, the baton. Well, so my, my Silicon Valley experience, it was all white guys. Mm -hmm. and, and there was no discussion. That was just the, of course, mm -hmm. it was just the assumption and, um, so yeah, we, we we didn't have soul searching about the the uh, systemic uh, bias and discrimination. It was just things were the way they were. Of course, they were that way. And we worked, and I I'll put myself in that bucket for sure to maintain that that bias in, in ways that made absolutely no sense. Yeah. I mean, we're irrational, which is, the, as a geek, you want to be rational. As a human, you realize you can't. But um, so there, there wasn't, except on the fringes, like the hippy-dippy fringes, there wasn't a conversation about the ethics of what we're doing. Um, there's certainly, um, okay, so here's a, here's a genuine dilemma in this 3X kind of thinking. Uh, how soon should you think about the ethical implications of what you're doing uh, during exploration when you can't predict what they are? So nobody at Facebook predicted uh, that they would they would disrupt the operation of of American democracy. Right? They didn't set out to do that for sure. They weren't paying attention to that, but that was the net effect of of uh the products that facebook built at what point should you begin worrying about the ethical implications and it's a trade-off and you can make arguments about worrying about it earlier to the point where you are completely paralyzed and you can't do anything because it something bad might happen or you can push it way late until <laughs> you've already caused irreversible damage to the fabric of society and that's definitely too late uh if you do it too early you can't actually predict what the net effect is going to be but take something like credit risk which is used in the u.s as a deliberate tool to uh to uh continue systemic discrimination um you know, as a programmer, as an individual, what responsibility do you have? Do, are you responsible for saying, no, I'm not going to implement these features? That's a tough one. You got a family to feed, but you're also a member of society. Uh, th there are no easy answers to this. I'm, I'm saying everybody's, everyone who has a long lever and programmers have a longer lever than pretty much anybody has had in a very long time for lots of people have to think about how you're going to press on that lever and which, which, 
which directions you're going to push and where your boundaries are and how you're you're going to know that you've reached those boundaries. So I did a, a training recently for uh, senior engineers at Gusto called uh, Influence Across Power Differentials. And um, there are a handful of the formal power differentials, like you're my manager and I'm your report. That relationship is now fraught. It's now going to be shaped by those power differentials. But the formal ones are swamped by the informal ones, like who has the most confidence in their ideas? That creates a power differential. Uh, who's taller? Who speaks louder? Who speaks with a, a, a clearer accent? All those things create power differentials. And if we're not aware of the differentials at play, then we're going to misuse them. And people who are disadvantaged with respect to power are going to contribute less, which is bad for the company and bad for the individuals. And they're going to grow into less of their potential, which is bad for the individuals, bad for the company, and bad for society. So as I, uh, in the arc, a word that came up uh, in our pre-discussion, in the arc of what I'm doing, I'm much more interested in these kinds of incentives problems. At the same time, I get really excited about geeky technical stuff like uh, test commit revert, which is a, a successor to TDD that's crazy and couldn't possibly work. And so you should definitely try it because it's easy to try. Uh, but the, the, the bulk of my time is, is more spent on how are we going to first become aware of the incentive systems in, in place and then how are we going to shape them so that it's easier to behave in ways that let us all grow as much as we can as individuals in profitable ways and contribute as much to society as we possibly can. And that's, and I think that in terms of handing over of batons, that's such a, a, um, a powerful message in that we 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 are not just the geeks we're not just the 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 technical servants of some other uh power plays but we are um kind of really at the crux of this technology and we carry such a strong um social and ethical responsibility um karen would you like to say any more Yes, uh, I'm also cognizant of time and this is something I can chat about, I think, maybe for no less than 84 years. But um, I guess I think one thing that I really appreciate is just like the honesty around like these are tough questions. There are no easy answers. Um, yeah. And, and I think the, the thing about the power differentials is definitely a starting point is, you know, if you're if you're at least cognizant of the power dynamics and the power imbalances, I think it makes it easier to at least adjust behaviors or, you know, just come to the come to the party in a more meaningful way. Um, I do think, however, that and this is maybe just something that I've ex experienced personally, um, but part of the kind of problem with the way in which a lot of tech is done is that it's done mostly by tech people. And so I wouldn't necessarily call myself a tech person. Uh, I, I didn't do a STEM degree. I did philosophy and economics, and I love it with all my heart. Uh, and now I do data science. And 
it's strange to me that like in a lot of really social problems uh, that people in tech are trying to solve, um, they have these really fancy degrees, but not a whole lot of critical thinking or, you know, sociology behind them. And I find that to be really, really scary and really dangerous. And I also don't think that the onus is on tech people to be, you know, uh, anthropologists or sociologists or anything like that. Like, that's an incredibly difficult task. But it is about, like, you know, inviting other people into the room so that you know exactly what it is you're solving for. And I do think that a lot of the ways in which we would think about problems in society would be different if it wasn't just tech people trying to think and solve for it. And I understand that this might just be my experience. It might not be fully representative of the rest of the kind of technical stratosphere, but yeah, it's definitely something that I have noticed. I think very much at the heart of XP, of Agile, is that responsibility that individuals take. So I think it really lies at the heart of everything Kent has been doing since uh, the 1990s. Um, I just wanted to ask, um, and, and we, we, we are getting to closing time now, uh, but um, you um, uh, spent some time in um, um, different parts of Africa. Uh, you uh, visited some very exciting um, uh, communities of developers in uh, Nigeria, in Kenya. Could you just speak about your impressions of the African uh, software or technology scene for a few minutes? Sure. My, my overall impression is, is that there's enormous untapped potential. Uh, I went to India in about 95 and um, it reminded me of, of Africa these days. The, that there were just a whole bunch of people with a whole bunch of smarts that hadn't ha hadn't had the, an opportunity to express them, but but they were just going to unlock tremendous potential. Um, uh, some things I really appreciated about my experience in Central Africa was was how much hustle folks had. Um, that's something that resonates very strongly with me. Um, yes, I had enormous privilege growing up. I mean, my, my dad was a programmer, taught me to program before other kids had computers at all and, and so on. But I also hustled. If I had an opportunity, I seized it and ran with it. And I, I encountered that uh, attitude very strongly in in Central Africa. Uh, I think the I'm gonna I'm gonna try and find a constructive way to say this. My experience in South Africa is, uh, you know, and I've been there now what a half a dozen times or five times, something like that. There's th that sense of of hustle and I'm going to go and make this happen for myself because nobody else is going to do this for me. That seems to be lacking in some of my interactions in South Africa. And uh, I don't know where that comes from exactly or how to address it. 
uh, the people who are being successful are the ones who are just going and making things happen and not waiting for for somebody else to give them permission. Um, so that was an interesting contrast. A- at the same time, the education infrastructure that you have in South Africa is is fantastic. Um, there are good ways to learn about uh, technology there. Um, and still limitless potential, but you know, the, the, there are kids in slums or villages who are smarter than me and they are just not going to have the opportunity unless somebody makes sure that they do have the opportunity. And that's, you know, I think uh, that's one of the things that if there's um, something that's become clear during the COVID pandemic, it's what has long been called the digital divide. And it just puts a spotlight on those differences. So, you know, huge potential, but but lack of opportunity and resource. And that's going to be our big challenge in the in the future world that comes out of this pandemic. Um, I'm just um, uh, wanting now to, and in our uh, relay race metaphor, in terms of handing over batons to Karen, to her generation in America, in Africa, in South Africa, uh, what kind of things would you say? And uh, you certainly have a long race to run still. I'm not uh, saying that you're done with your race, Absolutely far from not. it. But um, but um, suppose that I were to ask you what you would um, hand over to Karen and her generation in your country, in America, in South Africa, in uh, the rest of Africa. What would that baton look like and what would you hand over? So I think there's a, there's a technical side of it, which is um, the l- length of feedback loops. Y- you know, uh, back in my early days, I carried trays of punch cards, and then the next morning you'd get the the output. And people worked very very hard so that you could make a change to a program and see the results in under a second. And for whatever reason, we have uh, we have squandered that. Now we're used, I'm seeing build times that are an hour long, and and test runs that go into the hours. And y- yes, you can survive that way, but why the hell would you? And so I would like to see the next generation say, "Hey, this is a trap." We want to be able to make changes and see the results right now. Um, and I have this project called Limbo, where the, the intention is to get that feedback all the way from production within seconds. Um, on the more personal side, I, I think there's a... Geeks are accepting limitations sometimes oh i'm just a geek and so 
I don't communicate as well. I don't have good relationships. And I, I'd like to see that rejected. I would, I, I didn't accept that for myself eventually. You know, and that, that process of understanding a little bit about the context in which programming takes place. Uh, I would like to see uh, geeks being the kind of people who make the most of themselves and not accept the least. It, and if we do that, then these ethical, these impossible ethical dilemmas, like will my app cause the collapse of democracy, we're going to be aware of the right issues at the right time if we're trying all to be the best people that we can be. Definitely. And it comes down to that accountability we're talking to or alluding to at least where it's like, you know, if you're part of this very specific tribe of geek who does not make eye contact and is bad with humans, then I think that you're comfortable with that and that's all you're ever going to want to be. And it just makes no sense because there's so much, you know, duality in people and you can be a geek who also communicates well. And just why, you know, why? What is the point? <laughs> yep. And, yeah, and, uh, and makes music and makes art and exactly. writes stories. Exactly. and Yeah, and that I think is, I mean, if I have to, uh, to say what inspires me about you, Kent, is that you are... A complete person, you know. You, you, you do make music. You wear bow ties. You, um, uh, you, you do stand-up comedy. You tried to. I, um, I don't know if you ever w went on to Jeopardy, <laughs> but you were going to go into Jeopardy, and uh, there you go. You know, you're not a one-dimensional human being, and I think that it is frustrating that people are satisfied with putting themselves in a box and being that one dimensional human being. And the future world isn't going to tolerate that. People are going to have to stand up and, and be complete people. So I think that's a wonderful legacy to take from you and what you've done. I've been recommending a book very frequently recently. So that, that, that leaves me fairly confident that it's, uh, that it's a good thing to, to end with, which is uh, Danello Meadows' uh, Thinking in Systems. Um, increasingly, it's easy for people to, I, I talk to, to people who say, oh, well, we have a, an entire tree of uh, KPIs for our company and and this they roll up and roll up and roll up and then this is giant tree and if we make the leaf better then the root should get better and it's just not true because the leaves of that tree all affect each other all affect each other and um, being able to think in systems instead of simplistic trees that ignore the interactions between seemingly disparate elements it is the that's the the biggest intellectual superpower that you can have so i'm gonna i'm gonna recommend that and um yeah other than that karen i i want to i want your soundcloud okay well now i'm inspired to start a soundcloud so once i once i do i'll hit you up Oh, please do. It costs nothing and nobody cares. You're 100% right. <laughs> there you go. This will change <laughs> your life, Karen. <laughs> and um, I just want to, uh, to um, 
to close to just say a big thank you to Kent. Kent has been so generous with his time and uh, with his wisdom and knowledge and he's he's become a really good friend of mine and a really good friend of the South African and African uh, software community. And he's had a huge impact on what we do and how we do it. And I'm sure that his his influence will will uh, carry on manifesting in many ways. And I hope that listeners to this podcast will pick up on the batons that Kent has, or the pearls of wisdom that he's given us and the thoughts. And um, this will hopefully start a conversation. So thank you very much, Kent. Thanks for uh, joining us and thanks for your time. And um, I hope that you, you keep uh, doing wonderful things in the in many many more years to come. Mm-hmm. Thank yeah, you. thank you very thank much. You, thank you, thank you, thank this you. This is super dope. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure. This podcast is a Grand Geeks production. It is produced by Professor Barry Dwalatsky and edited by Evan Wigdorowicz. It is presented by Professor Barry Dwalatsky and Karen Gammy. Music is done by Callum Cool and logo designed by Evan Wigdorowicz. The companion website is at www.softwareengineer.org.za.